We are three weeks from the end of the book of John. <laughs> I say that and there's some celebrations, not because we're excited to be done with, with something, but because um, there are some of you who have been here since October 21st, 2018, when we started this series. Just pause and, and think on that for just a minute, because we have been in this book for going on three years. <laughs> and it has been a joy to preach through. It is, it is such a marvelous thing to work through and to study, you know, verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph, section by section, to see... The, from the very beginning all the way to the end. And, and like I said, three weeks left, including today. Next week, Scott is going to be bringing us through uh, the restoration of Peter, which for many of us is, is one of our favorite passages in the whole book. And then I'm going to get the joy of ending that, that, last, uh, that last section, dealing with some just really fun, fun things as the book of John ends. If you have been here through this with us all the way, I, I mean, I feel like I should, in a couple weeks, come with a bunch of, like, plaques. Right? Like, we made it! Um, and if you picked us up, picked up with us along the way somewhere, which I know a lot of you have, um, it is worth noting that you could always go back to Facebook, you go back to our webpage, and all those, those first sermons are there. You can see how this whole thing develops all the way through. Um, Scott and Sherry weren't even here yet when we began all of this. Um, and so it's just, it's a joy. If you've been paying attention, and if you've been reading the book of John, you may actually think we should be done now. Uh, many people do. And I don't mean that in some, like, because we've been preaching through it too, so long, but, but because many people, when they get to the end of chapter 20, think that this was the end. And you've got this great paragraph that sums up the whole thing. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that right there is a fine ending to the book of John. But it's not the ending of the book of John. John had more to say. And... And as we are in this, I want us to, to see how important some of these final bits are. Because John is going to end his book exactly where he begins his book. And we're going to see that today. John wants to, to bring it all to a tidy and nice place. I'm going to read our, our passage today. Um, and I had Scott earlier read from the book of Luke because I wanted us to have that passage in our heads as we read this one. What Scott read earlier was the calling of the disciples in the first place out of the book of Luke, um, where Peter and John and James, and they meet Jesus for the first time. And he, he instructs them about fishing and he, and he would call them to become fishers of men. And, and I want that in our heads as we would begin to read through this. So we're in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14 today. Let me read the word of the Lord. 
After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, we are pretty sure that is John, the author of the book of John, um, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I love this passage. I love this because it leads into the restoration of Peter, as Scott's going to be bringing us next week. But I love this passage for what it is, because this is a passage that you can smell. This is a passage that is so real that if you've ever even been on the shore of a lake or on the shore of an ocean, if you've ever been near a fish market, if you have ever been anywhere near water, you can smell this passage. You can smell the, the campfire smoke, right? It is real. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're given this passage. is because it is real. It, it takes the resurrection and it, and it lands it right where every one of us live. In the everyday. Because what we have here is Simon, who is a fisherman by trade, and his friends, most of whom also are fishermen by trade, who have encountered the risen Jesus and have now sort of gone back to their old lives. They're there. They're waiting for Jesus. They're being obedient. He said, wait in Galilee. So they did. They got there and they said, what do we need it now? And Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And they go with him. But they don't catch anything. Now, as a hobbyist fisherman, going out and fishing and not catching anything is frustrating. But as a fisherman, one whose livelihood would come from fishing, this is a terrible night. Right? This means that, that you spent all night working and got nothing for it. This is the, the guy who works solely on commission works 60 hours a week, doesn't sell anything, and makes nothing, right? This is the, the farmer who, who tills and sows, 
and the storm comes and wipes the entire crop out, and they get nothing. And it's not for lack of trying. It's not for a lack of hard work. It's not for lack of knowing exactly what to do and how to do it. So as morning comes, you can just picture Peter and his friends, they're together, and they are really tired because they've been up all night. They've been working to try to catch fish. They are hot, they are sweaty, they are hungry. And I love that this is the moment when Jesus shows up for them. He shows up at the worst of it for them on this day. Right? They're not put together. They're not ready for this encounter. They haven't had a good night's sleep. They are how some of you are right now. They're also a little smelly, which maybe is some of us are right now too. And this is the moment Jesus shows up. This is just, it's so real. There's nothing glamorous in this, in this passage. And at first glance, there's not even a whole lot going on. It's just that Jesus shows up and invites him to breakfast. How many of us, when we think about the moment that we truly encountered Jesus, encountered him in a moment like this, where nothing was working well, where frustration had set in, where we were exhausted, we were tired, and we were expecting nothing good. And it's in that moment that Jesus shows up. How many of us even right now need Jesus to show up in this way because that's exactly how we are sitting in our pew today? And that's when Jesus shows up. We're going to look today at this passage in kind of three parts. The first is kind of what's going on with the disciples. The second is we're, we're just going to take a look at Jesus showing up. And the third is we're going to look at the disciples' reaction in that. So if you're keeping track of, of kind of where we're going today, we're going to start with the disciples, we're going to look at Jesus, and then we're going to come back to the disciples. Verses 1 through 3, let me read this again. It says, after this, well, what's after this? After this is after he has appeared to the disciples, and he has casted them vision for their lives. He's going to send them as he has been sent. He is, after this, it goes back to Thomas, who who wasn't there the first time, who doubted and questioned and wondered, and Jesus shows up for him as well and proves himself. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Some of them have just returned to their normal lives. They followed Jesus for three years. They've traveled all over the all over the, the kind of the known world there, through Jerusalem and, and out and about through Samaria. They have they've become kind of world travelers with Jesus in this season. And and, and some of them here have now returned home. They're in Galilee. This is where they're from. Some of them have returned to their profession, fishermen. Others of them couldn't go home. The things they did before Jesus were not things they could keep doing after following Jesus. Right? Simon the Zealot, we don't know if he is in this mix or not. His name's not listed, right? He is known for being one who was a violent offender 
and fighter. That's what it means to be a zealot. He can't return to the life he had before. Matthew, the tax collector, probably can't either. Having been one who defrauded his countrymen, his friends, his family for so many years, it would be a terrible thing for him to return to the life that he had before. But Christian fishermen just make sense. You can be a fisherman and and be a Christian. You can be any number of of things and, and be a Christian. And so they return to their homes. They go back to their normal lives. But it's worth noting that, that some of them are there and they can't, and they are now hanging out with those who could. Some of us, when we think about our own lives, we, we know that we are pretty alone in this world. We have burned bridges with people in our past because of drugs or alcohol or violence. For some of us, we, we, we have been, been cast aside because of our Christian faith, because of what we believe we have been, been put in, in a box that says, I'm, I'm not going to be with you anymore. Our friends or our family have turned away, and maybe not us in that, but we know Christians around the world who are routinely put out when they accept Jesus. They are kicked out of their homes, out of their families, right? What is meant to happen at that moment? Well, the brothers are meant to take care of them. Why is Peter fishing? Because he has people he's got to feed now. He's got friends who have lost everything for Jesus, and he can return to his job. Nobody else can. Right? The church is meant to take care of those who have no family otherwise. For some of us, we may even look around this room right now, and we just think, this, this right here, this is my family. I mean, I have family out there somewhere, but this, this right here, these are, are my people. That's by design, by the way. That's what the church is supposed to be. And the the brothers, the disciples, they're already doing this in week one. Some of us, we've been trying to do this for 40 years and we still can't get it right. But Jesus appears to them. He comes to them in this place. Um, They are at work. (laughs) They are in their normal lives. They're doing their normal things. He comes to them. Who are they? Some of them are his favorites, right? You've got James and John and Peter. These are his three, his best friends. You also have Thomas here, who he has appeared to after he doubted and questioned. He's here. There's also a couple, and I love this, just unnamed disciples. Like, John's like, it doesn't matter who they are, right? (laughs) Well, that's kind of the point, I think, is it doesn't matter who they are exactly. But Jesus comes and he meets with them in this place. These are the people that he has chosen from the very beginning. And church, when we look around at at you and I who live in Lahana, Colorado, these are the same kind of people we are. God chooses. Christ has chosen from the beginning to use people just like this. People like you and I to do amazing things. and, And people like you and I to appear to. There are those in this world whom Jesus will never appear to who will not find salvation. And yet you and I in this space today, we have been called by Christ to know him and to follow him, to love him. He has loved us first. We are the same sort that are in this boat, in this story. Now what are they doing? They're, of course, they're fishing. This has troubled a lot of people 
over in, in history. And if you go and, and listen to sermons on this passage, inevitably you will find one where the pastor will stand before you and say that they were sinning for where they are. That because Jesus had already called them to evangelize, and now what they're doing is fishing for fish, that they are in the wrong place. I beg you to look at this passage and find that. Find a word of criticism on Jesus' lips in this. It doesn't exist. Okay? Jesus had earlier in chapter 20, verse 21, said, Just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. If you can find then in this passage, and that's why, I mean, they're like, look, Jesus called them to do a great thing, and here they are just doing their everyday ordinary thing. Church, there's no such thing as the everyday ordinary thing. He calls us to worship him in all th- situations, in all places, in all times. Pretty sure the Sunday school class today talked about that. I wasn't there, but I'm pretty sure that was the main idea. If you've ever heard a passage on that in this fashion, I just need to tell you that preacher was being cute with the text. And I'm sorry for that. Because what that does is it takes away from you, and even me, when we are doing secular work and normal, everyday, ordinary things, it takes away from that and says, look, it's the preacher up front who's, who's got the important role. When the reality is Jesus doesn't come to the preacher in this story, he comes to the fishermen while they're at work. What you do the other six days of the week that you're not sitting in these pews is just as important as what you do sitting in the pews here and raising your hands and praying and worshiping and fellowshipping with believers. Or at least it can be if you would see that your work the rest of the week is meant for his glory and for the good of the brotherhood, the good of the sister, the good of the church, right? As we would take care of one another. So they're out fishing. Jesus shows up to them. Jesus meets with them at this point. They are actually in the exact center of his will right now. For Matthew 28, 10, it actually tells they're commanded to be in Galilee. Jesus tells the the women who encountered him in the resurrection, hey, go and tell the other disciples to wait for me in Galilee. And they go, and they're obedient. He says, go and wait. And here they are. They're waiting in activity. They're they're not sitting in in the house doing nothing. They're like, hey, we don't know how long it's going to be before Jesus shows up. Um, Somebody's going to have to put some food on the table at some point here. We need, we need to make a living. And so they go out, and they do, and, they, and they're waiting for him in that, that moment. They're waiting for Jesus to, to do more. And the awesome thing is that this all goes back to the moment when most of them, when the fishermen at least, met Jesus. We read that passage. Scott read it earlier. And we look at the parallels in this passage to that one. Where, where they have spent the whole night toiling and have caught absolutely nothing, and now they're in that same exact situation. They've caught absolutely nothing, and Jesus calls out to them, have you caught anything? They say, no. He says, well, we'll try the other side of the boat. And it's a miracle. They, they catch all kinds. 
if they weren't living in disobedience right now, do you really think that Jesus would have shown up and given them a glorious miracle and the blessing of his presence? So powerful when we think about this. It does beg the question to us about whether or not we are where we are supposed to be. Are we where God has called us to be? Doing what God has called us to do. And in the absence of that direct call, are we living faithfully as they seem to be in taking care of one another and being each other's family and community at this point? It's not an excuse to say, well, the Lord hasn't called me to this specific thing. Now, if he has called you to this specific thing, it's time to go and do that thing. But if he hasn't called you to a specific thing, then here's the beautiful thing. He's called you to thousands of specific things in his word. We read it. We, we hear commands. There's command after command where Jesus says, love one another, serve one another, take care of one another, provide for one another, pray for one another, right? Encourage one another. There's tons of one another commands. So the absence of the Lord's voice and is specific in your life is not an excuse to not be actively serving the Lord right now. Because he has called you to it. Whether in the specific, go and do this in this place, as Scott talked about last week, or as he might be saying now to you and I, go and do my word in the place that you live. So that's the disciples. That's where they are. What about Jesus? Jesus is hidden. And I want to see this real quick. In verse 4, it says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. He's hidden from them. This is the second time, actually the third time this has happened. In two of the other appearances of the resurrection, Jesus came and he appeared uh, once to, to Mary, who thinks he's a gardener. And another time, uh, he, he lands with the, the men who are walking to, the, to Emmaus, to the town of Emmaus, and they, they spend the whole day walking with him, and they don't know who he is. And finally, they have their eyes open. Same thing with Mary. Finally, in the course of the conversation, her eyes are open, and she sees Jesus. And that happens here, too. Why does Jesus remain hidden? And how is it possible that men who had spent the last three years with him couldn't recognize him on the shore? Well, the answer to the second question is because Jesus didn't want him to know who he was. Which means there's purpose in him being hidden. And as you might pause and think even right now, you might be someone who, who could say to me, well, well, Matt, Pastor Matt, right now I feel like Jesus is hidden. I pray. I, I talk to him, I, I appeal, and I, I, he's hidden. I, I don't see him. I don't see him in my life. I don't see him working. I believe in him. I have faith in him, but, but he's hidden. Why in the world would Jesus be hidden? Well, I think you see three things in this passage that keeps Jesus' identity until just the right time. Here's the first one. Number one, so they do not miss the miracle. So they do not miss the miracle. Verse 5, Jesus says to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus controls all the fish in the sea. 
right? They've caught nothing, which is by design, right? The whole night was spent wasted by God's design. If they had even caught one fish the rest of the night, it actually would have taken away from how awesome this was. But the reality is they spent the whole night fishing, never caught a single thing. Why? Because all the fish were on the other side of the sea. As far away from them as they could be. Or at least they're, they're outside of the reach of the nets that they're casting. Or they're hiding under a sunken ship. I don't know where they are. But here, Jesus says, throw them on the other side. And immediately they fill their nets to beyond belief. And suddenly, they experience a miracle. Now as far as miracles go, this is a pretty unimportant miracle. Right? Like some of us would yearn for, for someone who's paralyzed to be healed. Right? Some of us would yearn for some of us who have had cancer to be instantly healed. Some of us are yearning for our children who are lost to be saved. And Jesus decides to allow them to catch, we're going to read later, 153 fish. They would have missed out on this miracle, even as small as this miracle is if they knew who he was when he walked onto the shore. Why? Because the moment Peter knew who he was, what did Peter do? He jumps in the water and swims to shore. Right? If they had known who he was before this miracle happens, they would not have experienced the miracle. Because they would have jumped the gun and already been going to him. So the first reason Jesus is hidden is because he wants them to enjoy this miracle. He wants to bless them with 153 fish. Now, as a hobby fisherman, that would be amazing. But in terms of thinking about providing for and caring for my family, it would be another whole level. The second reason that I think Jesus hides himself is that so there becomes a, a special moment of realization. You actually see this in each one of the stories where Jesus has hidden himself. So they don't know who he is. He, he waits till this perfect moment so that suddenly they, they are awakened. And suddenly they are enlightened. And, and in some of those cases, this is the moment when this person becomes a Christian. When they suddenly believe for the first time that Jesus is actually raised from the dead. I mean, even to Thomas he was hidden, right? Now, to these others, there's a miracle in the hiddenness. He's standing in front of them. They don't recognize him. Thomas, Thomas, he's also hidden from, right? He's not there when Jesus shows up. And yet Jesus has this master plan for this moment when these women and these men are going to come alive because suddenly they see him for who he really is and, and how amazing it is that in church. Think about all those times in your life when he was hidden, when he wasn't there, when he wasn't present, and then suddenly he was. Praise the Lord. Right? And it changed you. You could never be the same after that. See, I think the human psyche needs a startling moment like that where suddenly... The, the dead are alive, and suddenly faith comes alive. There's this moment of awakening that is happening for them, and Jesus has a plan for this. That sudden moment of awakening, awakening hurdles Peter into the water, right? 
right? The third reason that I think Jesus remains hidden in this specific instance is because he wants to remind them of their early calling. Right? Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. He doesn't do anything by mistake. He doesn't do anything incidentally. He has a plan here. And way back when he called, particularly the fishermen in the first place, what did he say to them? He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Here they are, having come to faith, having received a special calling to evangelize, to share the gospel in the world, and they are still, in fact, fishing for fish. It's time for a change. And so he uses this moment to draw them back to that moment when he first called them. The first time that he said, hey guys, cast your your nets on the other side. And they caught a boatload of fish enough that it broke their nets. Right? And this time he says, cast them in, cast your nets in. And they are going to catch another boatload of fish. One of the really awesome things that happens in that, you'll notice, is that we're told that the nets don't break. They don't lose a single fish. Well, that harkens back to when Jesus says what? He says, the Father has given me who he's given, and not a one of them will I lose. He is is taking this moment for them. And he's not just showing up, but he's reinforcing the call that he's placed on their lives from the very beginning, that they would be fishers of men, that they would be the means by which he would use to reach lost people for Jesus, to rescue sinners like them and draw them into faith. The beautiful thing here is that it tells us exactly how it's going to happen, not only for them, but for us as well. Because here's the picture we're given. These guys are professional fishermen. They know exactly what they're doing. They are masters of their craft, right? They can't catch a fish without Jesus. Church, how would we ever expect to catch a person without Jesus? Right? They spend the whole night trying and working hard on their own steam, their own means. Nothing happens. Jesus says, hey guys, throw it in over there. And they catch a boatload. They catch 153 fish. We cannot do the spiritual work that God has called us to do if we don't have Christ. If we're not directly connected to him, if we're not following his lead exactly as he says, hey, go throw your net over there instead. We can toil, we can work, we can be frustrated, we can be sweaty and smelly, nothing. But the moment Christ says, go and do this, what does he give us? He gives us the catch of a lifetime. These guys got it not only once, but twice in their lives. Jesus shows up to these men, he calls them, he reveals himself finally. And I love the reactions that come from the disciples. Peter's is the most pronounced, right? Verse 7, it says, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. All right, quick pause. So John is the first one to recognize what's happening here. He's the first one to remember 
that just three years ago, Jesus had said the same thing to them and the same thing had happened. He puts the pieces together. He connects it. He announces it. It's the Lord. What does Peter do? Peter, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Now, real quick pause. People get distracted by this. Please don't. He's not naked. Okay, there are Bible translations that say he was naked and put his clothes back on. Okay. It, it really means he's got his shirt off, right? Like, he's, he's got his lightweight undergarments on. He's been working hard. He doesn't have his cloak on. I mean, this is the, the, the image. And he throws his, his outer clothes back on, and he jumps into the ocean, into the, not the ocean, into the sea, and he swims ashore. I love the detail in that because, number one, if I'm about to swim 100 yards to the shore, I'm not putting on any extra clothes. Okay? Like, that's just heavy. I don't got to deal with it. I'm not a great swimmer as it is. Now, Peter's a fisherman. I imagine he's probably a pretty good, pretty good swimmer, but he throws his clothes out and he jumps in, right? Such a powerful image. Now, I want to tell you, I have heard, also heard sermons on this passage as to why you and I should wear suit and tie to church. Right? Because Peter throws his best on and goes and sees Jesus. That is a weird like, thing to do. That's another moment of being cute with the passage. It gets even worse when you really pause and think about this at all. Because Peter, who is as dirty as one could be, smelly and whatever else, being in the boat and working all night, he throws on his dirty clothes, he jumps into the muddy lake, he swims ashore, crawls ashore on a muddy shore. Have you ever seen the kind of shores that they have in Israel? They're not like white sandy beaches. They're actually a lot more like Blue Lake or other things. They're just not and so, like, he's, he crawls ashore. He shows up to Jesus, and his hair is disheveled, and his clothes are disgusting, and he smells like seaweed. Okay? What I love about that picture is, is that it does not matter what Peter looks like. It does not matter who he is. In fact, the, the message you get from this is the exact opposite of showing up in your best, because Peter literally shows up at his worst at this point. He's breathing heavy, he's tired, right? On the other hand, you've got the disciples. You've got the other disciples, right? Peter has jumped overboard. He's probably the most experienced fisherman in the group, everything else. He has jumped overboard. His friends, some of which who aren't fishermen, are still in the boat. And they take their time dragging this super heavy net behind their boat. If you've ever tried to like boat or something with like a sea anchor behind you, this, this is work. They're rowing ashore, whatever that looks like. It takes them a while. It is slow. It's the exact opposite of what Peter has just done. Right? Peter, Jesus, bam, hits the water. The others are, I mean, they're, they're, they're working hard to get there. The image that, I, that, that we get is, I think, Peter, who goes to Jesus with, with no physical baggage, but all the spiritual baggage in the world. Why? Because he, the last time he's had a real interaction with Jesus, he denied him three times. 
Peter's the first one to hit the water. He, he knows that he's messed up. He knows how much he needs Jesus. He shows up with basically no physical baggage, but all the spiritual baggage anyone could have. On the other hand, the other disciples show up with a boat and a net of fish. They, have, they are free spiritually, but they are dragging this physical thing behind them. It's just a picture to me of, of how we come to the Lord so often, dragging this weight that we didn't need to bring. <laughs> right? Church, I don't know where you are today, but, but I imagine every one of us came in here with something. We came in, and what we needed is an encounter with Jesus, the risen Jesus. And so we look at the disciples here and their reaction when they finally realize it's Jesus. And it begs that question for us. Man, when we discover who Jesus really is, what does that look like for us? I mean, do we just dive in unencumbered? Or do we kind of slowly drag what we have and try to get to him? All right, the beautiful thing, though, is, is they all get to the shore and just take note of that, regardless of who you are today and what you dragged into this room with you today. All the disciples make it back. They all make it to shore. Peter does it a little bit faster. The others do it a little bit slower together. <laughs> right? I mean, there's a lot of kind of things you could draw out of that. And we get to verse 9. It says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. Now just take note, he's the guy who just swam to shore, abandoned his friends in the boat. I imagine they're all pretty tired from rowing in or however they got in. Peter manages to drag this net. It says he does it. right? He drags this net forward and, and, and out. And it says, although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. That is such a simple invitation for us today. We overcomplicate what it means to know Jesus. We're off doing, and he's saying, come and sit. Right? He's already prepared the meal for them. The fish are cooked. The bread is cooked. And he says, hey, bring some more of those fish over. We're going to do this right, right? They got all you can eat fish fry happening right here on the beach. He says, come, come. He invites their contribution to this feast. But you need to notice, he doesn't need it, right? The food's already ready. If there wasn't enough fish for all of them cooking already, he could have just made more fish. He's done it before. He doesn't need them to bring 153 fish ashore, but he invites them to bring what he has already given to them to the table. It's an amazing lesson in stewardship here. We think about giving. We think about our tithing and our offering and our sacrificial giving. Why? You look at this, and, and they would have nothing if it wasn't for him. And he calls them to bring some of what he has given them forward. It's beautiful. Amazing reminder to us that, that we, 
everything we have in this world, we have been given to him, or given it to us by him. And he calls us to give. It all comes from him. But just notice this. He doesn't need it. But he wants us to bring it forward. What I love here is that we are told the number of fish. There are people who try to do, this is what this means and this number. Really, It's just a lot of fish. <laughs> it's just a lot of fish. Too many to catch on their own. That's the point. That he's blessed them beyond what they could do on their own. There is no rational explanation for this. Anything aside from him giving it. And he's brought every single fish that they caught in. And he's saying, look, come and sit with me. Come and have breakfast with me. Come and, and be. And church, I, just, I want to invite you into that moment right now. In just a minute, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. Right? And again, a, a table that, that he prepared. A meal that he laid out in front of us. He's done all the work to, to serve up himself in the Lord's Supper. And he says, just come. Just come and eat. Come and sit with me by the fire. And share in this meal together. Harkens back to Psalm 23, where we're told that he prepares a feast in front of the enemies, right? He is the one preparing the feast. He is the one preparing the meal. He is the one who is providing for us. He is the one that showed up in this place and called them to himself, revealed himself to them. And church, I, I just want us to, to, to smell this scene again. Because it's delicious. <laughs> it's amazing. It's beautiful. Because he has done what needs to happen here. And church, I don't know where you are today. Maybe you are like the disciples out doing your thing in the boat and you really need Jesus to show up right now. Maybe you've already swam to shore and you really need that invitation to just sit with him and to feast. Maybe you're just still waiting for him to reveal himself, to, to show you who he is. The one who gives the one who loves you, the one who has rescued, the one who has saved you. And I pray that if that's you today, that today would be the day that your eyes would be open. And I think what we need to do is pray. And, and if you are that person today right now, you need to pray that the Lord would open your eyes. It's not something we can do ourselves. But the Spirit has to, to open our hearts, soften them, and, and cause us to hear and to see. To have that sudden moment where you realize, this is Jesus, this is the Savior. And church, if, if you've done that before and, and you're, what you're needing right now is you need to see how he's working. You need to see the, the miracle that he's working in your life right now. That he's drawing you to new life, to transformation. These are all the miracles that he wants us to see. And we pray for that too. To say, Lord, I don't see you right now. I, I feel empty or like you're absent or I know that I need to grow in this area I'm struggling with this addiction or this thing and we say Lord reveal yourself to me right now 
that I would see you, that I would experience the miracle. Maybe you have all that. And what you need is the reminder of the calling that he has placed on your life. That you would not just be a fisher of fish, but a fisher of men. That you would not just be what you have been, but that, that what you do would be used for the glory of God. How you live your life every other day of the week would be used for his glory, for his mission, for his purpose. Whether that's in the raising of, of money so that you have lots to give away, or the freedom of time so that you can commit your life to praying for those who are out there sharing the gospel in the streets and communicating and preaching and proclaiming, or whether or not you are called to be one of those who proclaims and calls, right, and shares the gospel. That he's laid a call on our lives, and if none of those specifically, the general call to be faithful, to be a Christian, not just to, to know of Christ, but to be like him, loving and serving. The invitation is laid out before you. Come and feast. Come and feast with him. And with that, I want to go straight into communion, straight into the Lord's Supper, because the invitation is made to we who believe, and even to you who doesn't believe, if you would but believe right now, that he has called you, he has rescued you, he has saved you, and he is calling you to a new life. He's the one who's laid this out. He's the one who invites us to the table. We participate in the Lord's Supper every week so that we would always remember exactly what he has done. Right? Because we forget. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he lifted it and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. He took the cup and lifted it and blessed it and said, this is my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. He offered these both to his disciples to eat and to drink. We are offered the same meal to come and sit with him and eat. Now you may be coming today and say, hey, I... I have sin in my life, I have trouble in my life, I have problems in my life, I need to lay these things down. This is one of those opportunities. We, we come and to him and, and we lay it out before him. If there is sin, know that he is faithful and just. When we confess our sins, he will forgive us. If there is burdens, he says, come to me all whose, whose, whose life is, is heavy and I will give you a light burden. Come and feast on Christ and with Christ in this moment. Take a minute when you're ready, come forward and do so. A reminder, the blue buckets are for your giving. Come straight out of this passage. Everything you have came from him. And he calls us, not because he needs it, but because he knows that we need to bring it as a contribution to him. We invite you to give if it's part of your worship today and to do so faithfully. Come and eat. Celebrate. Remember what Christ has done. Amen.